Hello, everyone, and welcome to the January 24th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. San Diego's Balboa Pharmacy has paid $105,000 to resolve allegations in a federal civil enforcement case that it illegally dispensed opioids and other dangerous drugs to its patients. The Controlled Substances Act states that pharmacists have a responsibility to only fill prescriptions that are written for a legitimate medical purpose while acting in the usual course of professional practice. The United States government alleged that Balboa Pharmacy failed to meet its responsibility when it filled opioid prescriptions without resolving or even often attempting to resolve what the government called red flags. These red flags are indications that a prescription may be invalid. Balboa Pharmacy allegedly filled prescriptions without resolving the following commonly known red flags. Prescriptions for large quantities of opioids, well above guidelines for treating patients. Prescriptions for dangerous combinations of drugs, opioids, and benzodiazepines such as Valium and Xanax, and opioids, benzodiazepines, and muscle relaxants, a combination that is colloquially referred to by drug abusers as the Trinity because of the rapid euphoric effects of this combination of drugs. Another red flag is patients who receive prescriptions from multiple prescribers, which sometimes were for the same types of controlled substances or for dangerous combinations of drugs and filling prescriptions for patients early, which includes filling a patient's prescription before the patient's earlier prescription for the same drug ran out. In addition to the monetary penalty, Balboa Pharmacy agreed to develop policies and procedures and training that addresses the identification and resolution of these red flags. The investigation exemplifies the Department of Justice's willingness to investigate pharmacies that may be filling dangerous prescriptions without first confirming the legitimacy of each prescription. And now our crime reports. A retired San Jose police officer who owned a security business on the side was convicted of $1.13 million in insurance fraud, $18 million in money laundering to cover it up, tax evasion, and worker exploitation. The former officer owned the business without the knowledge of the San Jose Police Department when he worked there. Robert Foster, the officer who lives in Morgan Hill, pleaded no contest to a series of felony fraud charges and he will be sentenced to three years in county jail and two years of supervised probation. Foster will also repay $1.13 million to Everest National Insurance and the Employment Development Department, along with a general order of restitution. Foster owns Atlas Private Security, a company now known as Genesis Private Security, with his wife, Michaela Foster, 
who also pleaded no contest to a variety of related fraud charges. She will be sentenced to one year in county jail and five years of probation. The six-month-long investigation was spearheaded by the Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office, Bureau of Investigation, in close collaboration with the California Department of Insurance, the Employment Development Department, the Department of Justice, and the Department of Labor. The Fosters illegally reduced their insurance premiums and taxes by reporting false and inaccurate payroll, underreporting headcount, paying employees off the books, and underreporting employee injuries. The Fosters failed to pay employees overtime and dissuaded those employees from accurately reporting on-the-job injuries and wage theft violations. In one instance, an off-the-books security guard suffered a severe injury during a crash while driving an Atlas security vehicle. Robert Foster responded to the guard's $1 million medical bill by telling the insurance company that the guard was not an Atlas employee. But investigators found records showing that the guard was driving an Atlas vehicle and wearing an Atlas uniform at the time of the collision. The probe also uncovered that the Fosters allegedly hid millions of dollars of payroll through a complex subcontractor masking scheme. Employees were paid by a different security company, which had no knowledge of the employees' hours, wages, or schedules. Instead, the other company simply moved money from the Fosters' firm to the employees so that the Fosters could avoid paying their fair share of taxes, workers' compensation insurance, and overtime wages. And in regulatory news, the Division of Workers' Compensation announced that its emergency regulations for medical legal evaluations became effective on January 18, and it will expire on July 19, 2022, unless there are possible extensions of 90 days. The regulation allows a QME or AME to complete a medical legal evaluation through telehealth, when a hands-on physical examination is not necessary, and all of the following conditions are met. Number one, there's a medical issue in dispute, which involves whether or not the injury is AOE-COE, or the physician is asked to address the termination of an injured worker's indemnity benefit payments or address a dispute regarding work restrictions. The second condition is that there is an agreement in writing to the telehealth evaluation by the injured worker, the carrier or employer, and the QME. However, the agreement to telehealth evaluation cannot be unreasonably denied. If a party to the action believes that the agreement to telehealth evaluation has been unreasonably denied, they may file an objection with the WCAB along with a declaration of readiness to proceed to set the matter for hearing. Another condition is that the telehealth evaluation is conducted by, by means of a virtual meeting. It must also be consistent with appropriate and ethical medical practices as determined by the QME and the relevant medical licensing board. And the final condition requires the QME to attest in writing that the evaluation does not require an in-person physical exam.
During the time this regulation is in effect, Section 34B of the QME rules is suspended, and for purposes of the QME telehealth evaluations conducted under this regulation, the medical office listed on the panel selection form for the QME shall be deemed the site of the telehealth evaluation. The California Workers' Compensation Institute announced that registration is open for its 58th annual meeting. It is planned as a live event on Tuesday, March 8th from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Lesher Center for the Arts in Walnut Creek, California. For those who are unable to attend the live event, there will be an encore broadcast with live Q&A on Thursday, March 10th at 9 a.m. The theme of this year's meeting will be, Are We Ready Yet? An acknowledgement and analysis of our industry's dual state of mind after almost two years of working through the worldwide pandemic and the anticipation of returning to normal. The CWCI staff and guest speakers will examine both the current environment as well as the issues challenges, and opportunities facing the California workers' compensation community as we move toward and into the post-pandemic environment. The meeting will include Dr. Mark Schneip, the director of the California Economic Forecast, who will examine the impact that COVID-19 continues to have on the California and the U.S. economies, the Great Resignation, and the economic outlook for the year ahead. CWCI's Rena David and Alex Swerdlow will present a three-part research update on COVID-19's continuing impact on California workers' compensation, changes in medical legal utilization and reimbursement under the new medical legal fee schedule, and injured worker access to medical care. And industry advocates Jason Schmelzer and Jeremy Mertz will discuss the 2022 legislative and regulatory environment. And finally, attorney Michael Marks will wrap up the meeting, revisiting the theme of Are We There Yet? by renewing how our current system operates, examining how well it fulfills the original workers' compensation grand bargain, and providing his insights on what is left to accomplish and whether or not we can ever get there. The CWCI's 58th annual meeting is free to CWCI members, company employees, regulators, and the press. And it costs $325 for all other participants. The live meeting will begin with a continental breakfast at 8 a.m. and will also include a luncheon from noon to 1. All those planning to attend the March 8th live event or the March 10th Encore broadcast must pre-register on the CWCI website. And the CWCI also reports that California workers' compensation COVID-19 claim volume continues to track with the state's fluctuating COVID infection trends. Last November, the monthly COVID claim count fell to a five-month low, but then it reversed course in December as the Omicron variant led to a wave of coronavirus cases throughout the state. 
The latest monthly count of COVID workers' comp claims jumped 172% in December to the second highest level of the year as the Omicron variant spread rapidly across the state. CWCI's latest projection also shows that the December total could ultimately increase to nearly 12,500 cases once claims that are yet to be filed or still under investigation are added to the count. Since the pandemic was declared in March of 2020, there have been 181,770 COVID claims reported to the DWC. The current count of 8,292 COVID claims for December represents a one-month increase of 172% and is already above the peak level reached in August during last summer's Delta surge. The spike in claim volume at the end of the year translates to 10% of all 2021 work injury and illness claims reported to the state. That was significantly better than the nearly 119,000 COVID claims reported for 2020 prior to the availability of COVID vaccines when COVID cases accounted for 17.9% of all California workers' compensation claims reported to the state. With the Omicron surge at the end of 2021, however, COVID claims as a percent of all California workers' compensation claims more than tripled from 6.6% in November to 20.5% in December, the highest percentage since January 2021. The latest report also notes a total of 1,284 COVID death claims since the pandemic began, with 955 of those having 2020 injury dates and 329 having 2021 injury dates. So COVID death claims accounted for well over half of the work-related death claims reported to the DWC for 2020, and nearly 40% of death claims reported thus far for 2021. The new data also shows that while COVID claims were most prevalent among healthcare workers in the first year of the pandemic, with the introduction of vaccines and increased safety procedures, that, per- that percentage dropped to 22.5% in 2021. Meanwhile, public safety government workers' share of the COVID claims jumped from 16.7% in 2020 to 24.7% in 2021, as their share grew steadily as the year progressed. As a result, the public safety and government sector surpassed the healthcare to become the number one sector for California workers' compensation COVID claims in 2021. In a first-of-its-kind study, Amitros found that over 34,000 claims per year were denied to Medicare beneficiaries post-settlement because workers' compensation Medicare set-aside funds were responsible instead for payments, not Medicare. After a claim is settled, the Medicare set-aside may only be used to pay for medical treatment or prescription drugs related to the underlying claim and only if the expenses for a treatment or prescription Medicare would have covered. 
NMSA administrator is responsible for accurate record-keeping of payments made from the account, and the administrator reports attestation information to CMS annually, even when an account is permanently exhausted. CMS has long warned that it requires MSA funds to be used appropriately before Medicare benefits will pay for injury-related treatment. However, many in the industry have questioned whether Medicare ever denies claims when MSA funds are improperly spent. So Amitris decided to find out by collaborating with researchers who analyzed Medicare Part B claim data from 2018 through 2020 and published a study. In the study, researchers estimated that Medicare denied nearly 40,000 MSA-related claims in 2018, more than 36,000 in 2019, and nearly 30,000 in 2020, all because the individual's MSA account should have paid the claims. The report provides a state-by-state chart of denial breakdowns and shows how CMS tracks MSAs and MSA post-settlement administration and compliance obligations. Almost one-third of all denials were in California, and less populated states like Indiana, Colorado, and Maryland also had a substantial amount of denied claims. The data shows that Medicare has a robust tracking system as it, and it is in place to identify and pay or deny payment when an individual with an MSA submits a claim. The report concludes by saying that it's evident that individuals who choose to self-administer risk be risk being denied future treatments and services by Medicare because they have not properly complied with Medicare's guidance. This includes their account incorrectly or not using the MSA settlement funds appropriately. And in medical news, and here there might be some good news for California and California claims administrators. While California continues to see disturbing rises in COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths, the Los Angeles Times reports that there are some early signs that the unprecedented Omicron wave is slowing down. The shift is uneven across the state, but the numbers suggest California could be reaching a crest in the latest surge. States on the East Coast that were hit earlier by the Omicron wave have already started to see a sustained decline in infections. California has recorded more than 7 million coronavirus cases as of this week. The tally recorded in the state's databases last Monday comes one week after it recorded its 6 millionth coronavirus case. There's never been as many Californians simultaneously infected in the history of the two-year-old pandemic. According to recent data, California was averaging 103,000 cases a day for the most recent seven-day period, slightly below the prior week's rate of 107,000 the week before. The state was then reporting 60,000 cases a day. California's case rate fluctuated between 114,000 and 115,000 in the last few days, the highest rates in the pandemic. 
Some of the state's most populous regions may also start to be leveling off in case rates. Southern California recorded a slight reduction from the 75,000 recorded a week earlier. And Los Angeles County posted a record number of coronavirus cases last week, nearly 42,000 a day. But, based on numbers released through Wednesday afternoon, L.A. County is now averaging about 37,000 cases a day. The greater San Francisco Bay Area is now averaging about 18,000 coronaviruses a day, a rate that has fluctuated between 18 and 22,000 for roughly a week and a half. The greater Sacramento area recorded about 5,400 cases a day for the most recent weekly period. The capital region has been fluctuating between 5 and 6,000 cases a day for the last week and a half. And in the greater San Joaquin Valley, a region that generally lags behind trends in Southern California and the Bay Area, cases there are still going up. The rate at which California's coronavirus tests are coming back positive has also started to decline. But the rate is still very high by comparison to early December. And in another story, a continuing crush of patients in the San Diego area became so severe Tuesday that the region's two main medical facilities declared internal disasters, a term used to indicate that conditions have worsened to the point where patient care may be affected. The CEO of Scripps Health said, that the emergency department at Scripps Mercy Hospital Chula Vista had 73 patients mid-afternoon, filling its 24 emergency beds and 23 more inside tents in the parking lot. 20 more were in beds set up in emergency room hallways, with additional spaces taken in areas traditionally used for recovery from surgical procedures or medical imaging. He added in an email that just after 9 p.m. that Scripps was able to move some patients and exit disaster status for now. A second facility and the largest hospital serving the South Bay, Sharp Chula Vista Medical Center, experienced similar levels of stress Tuesday, declaring the same internal disaster status. It had 30 of its 48 emergency beds occupied by patients waiting to be admitted to the main hospital, which was already full. As of 7 p.m., 116 of the medical center's 349 total beds were filled with patients fighting COVID. Statewide, California continues to struggle with large numbers of its residents testing positive. According to the Los Angeles Times data, California recently hit the 7 million case mark just one week after hitting 6 million, a record pandemic pace. When the number of emergency patients exceeds an an individual hospital's resources, facilities traditionally turn to diversion, a system that allows them to significantly reduce ambulance deliveries, thus providing a few hours for harried staff to catch up. But that option was taken off the table last week when the county's emergency medical services director temporarily suspended 
self-directed diversion for all hospitals through January 27th. The move came as a way of coping with the fact that high patient volume was regularly forcing a large percentage of regions' hospitals to simultaneously go on bypass diversion. Declaring an internal disaster is, in some significant sense, hospitals telling the region's emergency medical services system that despite a ban on bypass, they cannot handle the volume and are closing their doors to additional ambulance patients. Tuesday afternoon, the county's chief medical officer said that duty officers who run the local emergency medical services system were working to help alleviate the disaster conditions at the two South Bay locations. He added that the situation countywide did not appear to be as impacted as it was Tuesday in the South Bay. And Scripps said Tuesday afternoon that it has shifted some patients out of Shula Vista to other hospitals it operates across San Diego County. Tri-City confirmed Tuesday evening that it recently requested and received some staffing support to address the challenging environment caused by elevated demand for Earth services and workforce limitations during the current surge. So that is all of our news and events for this short week. Please check our websites daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, Minuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.